G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Before we pray, I'd just like to, I'd like to run a little theory past you, actually. Um, it, it's, a, it's just an idea of mine, it's... Um, uh, you know, it's not particularly from the Bible or anything. Uh, it, it is something, uh, I guess, a way of thinking about people that hopefully might help us care for people um, a little better and uh, and care for one another pastorally, how how they're going at church, how we can help them, what they need right now. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that it's accurate, but it's just something that I'm mulling over. I thought I'd share it with you. Here it is. I wonder if these two categories might be a helpful way for us to think about um, our life here at church. Two categories. So on the one hand, here's category number one. Are you a person, do you fit this category, are you a person who is on your way in to church? Uh, There are some people here today, and, and I think it is a normal pattern of church life, people who are in the process of finding their way in at church. They aren't in at the moment, uh, but they'd like to be. And that's kind of, that's where they're going. They're on their way. You're on your way in at church. That's the direction of your movement, if I can put it that way. Uh, You might be on your way in simply in the sense that, well, you're kind of new around here, actually, and you're still, you're not quite sure of everyone's names, you're still learning people's names, and you're not quite confident that you know um, who everyone is, what the lie of the land is, where you fit, you might be still figuring all that stuff out. Do you see the kind of category I mean? Um, On the other hand, you might be on your way in, but simply in the sense that, well, you've started on a new ministry team and you're figuring out where you fit. So you've, you've joined it or you've put your hand up for a new roster and you're still figuring out kind of where you are with that and what that involves. You don't feel at ease. You're on your way in, but you're not quite there yet. How do I get in? It may be that you've noticed, and you don't know why it's never occurred to you before, that this is whole social group here at church that you weren't particularly part of before, weren't particularly even aware of before, and now you want in on that group. Do you see? There's all sorts of ways to interpret it. Are you on your way in? And of course, the second category, category number two, you know what it is, don't you? It's the person who feels, you feel that you are on your way out, one way or another. Um, And that doesn't have to be the terribly dramatic out of church entirely or out of this church necessarily or out of the church. You know, it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, your faith in crisis or anything like that. But aren't there seasons of life and perhaps you're in one right now where your sense of belonging here, your your sense of identity, uh, it just becomes eroded here at church for a season. Your sense that this is where I am and this is who I am and these are my people and I know what goes on around here, it just wanes from time to time or it gets challenged or rattled and it may not be anyone's fault. I mean, it might be someone's fault, but it may not be anyone's fault. You're not particularly trying to lay the blame, but what once felt like yours, now you feel a bit of a stranger to it around here. You're sort of finding yourself on the way out, drifting outward. Would anyone even notice if I wasn't here today? Maybe I wasn't here last Sunday and did anyone even notice? You know, that kind of thing. 
uh, or perhaps it gets rubbed in like this. Um, he or she, that other person, gosh, they always get the praise for the things that they do around here at church. Everyone seems to notice. They get the attention, they get the thanks, they get a mention from the front. And it's not that you begrudge them personally because, gosh, they do pour a lot in, they do so much. Isn't it wonderful? But it does send the message to you, what I do around here doesn't really matter. It doesn't get noticed. I don't seem to be particular. It's not valued. So my set of gifts, my wisdom, my experience, the part that I've played here in years gone by. Are you right now on the way in here at church? Or do you kind of feel that you're a bit on the way out here at church? Now, here's the thing. While I think that that is a a bit of... it, It is a helpful framework, a helpful question to ask. I don't think it's a healthy way to remain. While I think it is a helpful question to ask, I don't think it's a helpful, healthy way to remain. And our passage today in 1 Corinthians 11, that's the one that we're going to be primarily focusing on in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it has some sage advice for us. If that is primarily the way that we have come to start thinking about our place here at church, am I on the way in or am I on the way out? If that has become our way of thinking about our place here at church, 1 Corinthians 11, it's got some wonderful advice and direction for us. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which is God's word to us today, lists some ingredients for a much healthier diet of church life together and indeed spiritual life together. So can we pray now as we come to God's word to us in 1 Corinthians? Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, We remember this morning the life of our Lord Jesus, his earthly life, fully God and fully man. We remember that he came to earth. He entered our world and into the normal relationships of life, the normal networks of human relationships. And Father, we confess it is a relief to us that our God knows what life is like from the inside, knows human life from personal experience. Our God in heaven knows earthly life. So, Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would empower us to bring our social anxieties before you, our personal grievances even, our niggling concerns, our doubts and our worries, to bring all of those things before you for examination, before your scriptures, for analysis, for prescription of the way ahead, for treatment and for healing and finally for hope. Father, in the power of your spirit, would you nourish our souls, please, personally and together for your glory and the good of these wonderful people that we find ourselves amongst here at church week by week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, um, please have it open in front of you, Uh, it'll come up on the screen, but uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth uh, there, that ancient Greek city, we're going to have to get our heads back into a very different setting once again this week as we come back to this letter, this city of Corinth, so full of drama and mess and controversy and that's within the church as well as in the culture surrounding them. Um, And yet Paul counts these Men and women, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Their church is is a legitimate church. It's real church 
for all of their failings. And if you cast your mind back over the course of Corinthians, gosh, they had some failings. They were brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, And in many respects, they were going pretty well as a church in a difficult setting. Chapter 11, verse 2, we read this last week. 11, verse 2, I praise you, says Paul to these Corinthian brothers and sisters. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. And yet we take it up today in verse 17, um, where Paul is basically saying, but guys, can we talk about yet another area in your church life of more mess and controversy? Uh, So last week, you remember, um, we saw that rather than bringing glory to God and their church meetings were all about bringing glory to God and good to one another, their church meetings seem to have become a place where people were bringing shame on one another um, uh, with apparent disregard for their brothers and sisters, their fellow Christians, and that was especially between wives and husbands there in the Corinthian church meetings. Uh, Do you recall that? Well, this week, the glory of God has once again fallen from view in their church meetings because what they do in church has become all about who is in and who is out, or more pointedly here, the haves versus the have-nots. That's my read of it. Anyway, let's uh, pick it up from verse 17 and see if you agree with me as we, as we go through here. Have I got it right? Verse 17. In the following directives, writes Paul, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, he's just talking about their church meetings, for your meetings do more harm than good in the first place. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. It's a pretty ugly picture of church, isn't it? We might have to tone it down to sort of try and find what it might look like for us. Is church for you the one place in your week more than anywhere else? where you are reminded of all that you don't have, of all that you haven't amounted to, of all that you haven't become in your life. Maybe that's more what it might look like in our setting. Paul says, if it has devolved to that, if it has sunk to that point, then you are not eating the Lord's Supper together. It's a farce. It's a parody. It's a, it's a sham. It's not, it's not what church is about. It's not what church is for. Now, as you can um, probably imagine, uh, the historians love to try and reconstruct how on earth this kind of conduct could possibly have happened. You know, the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the people being, um, you know, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. How, how, on that could possi- how could that possibly work? How can the rich, the rich haves, be pigging out, as it were, while the poor have nots, seem to be going away. What's starving? Is, is that what's going on here? Because it, it, the way we do Lord's Supper, 
I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how that could possibly work in our setting, isn't it, when you think about the way we do Lord's um, Supper. You can't really imagine it. Do they literally, what were they doing? What were the rich doing? Do they literally bar those filthy, starving, poor people in their church from the table? Do they have bouncers at their church to bar the, the poorer ones from the Lord's table? How could, how could they live with themselves? How did it work? Uh, Well, it may have been something like this, and I think this fits with the text nicely, um, but I I think it's important that we have some kind of picture in mind here of what was going on. So let me paint it like this. The plan is, on Sunday, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together, just like Jesus told his disciples to do. So we're going to start the meal, and it will be a full meal. We're going to start the meal with the bread, And we'll do a little ritual of the breaking of the bread uh, and then everyone starts this meal together. And at the end, after everyone's finished, or at least after all the food has gone, we'll say the words with the cup, the little ritual with the words with the cup, imitating our Lord on the night that he was betrayed. So the whole meal will be the Lord's Supper bookended by these two things. It's going to be a meal for our church just like Jesus did with the disciples. Now, here's the thing. Have a listen to this. In the Roman world, in many cases, the seating of the guests and the distribution of the food were orchestrated in such a way as to reflect the social pecking order. This is not talking about church particularly, it's just talking about how they did dinner in that setting, okay? in such a way as to reflect the social pecking order. Ancient writers complained of the lower quality or lesser quantity of food served to them in comparison with the more highly esteemed dinner guests. It seems that the social elite of the church, who would not have been constricted by work obligations, so we are are talking about church now, it seems that the social elite of the church in other words, who didn't have to work through the day, because remember, Sunday was the first working day of the week. So the rich elite gathered and began their meal before the arrival of the poorer members of the church who wouldn't have had such flexibility in work and schedule. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? It actually gets a bit more complicated by building layout. Have a listen to this. Even a large Roman home in Corinth would have room for only a limited number of people in the dining room. So that even if all the members arrived at approximately the same time, only those who were invited in would have been likely to be served a full meal. Other members may have gathered in an outside atrium where sparser offerings, if any, would have been found. It's just hypothetical, it's reconstructing, but are you able to form a little bit of a picture there of how it's possible that an entire meal might have been not even on the table for some of the members in the Corinthian church? Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else, as in you didn't even wait for most of them to arrive. They're not even there and you've started. Those poor ones for whom perhaps it's their only meal for the day. Paul goes on, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So, if the Corinthians were to reinstate the glory of God in their church meetings, and if they were to re-establish the good of one another as a guiding priority in their life together, if they were to rediscover a legitimate Lord's Supper experience that's actually in keeping with what Jesus had established for his disciples, Paul says they need three ingredients. That's what we're going to devote the remainder of our time to today. There are three ingredients within the storehouse of the Lord's Supper itself done rightly, understood rightly, three ingredients that will transform those Corinthian meals into something God-glorifying, transform them uh, into a people who are less concerned with uh, whether or not they are in or out or which way they are moving, whether they are haves or have not, and lead them to become the church that God would have them be. Three ingredients. Let me show them to you from the remaining verses here in the remaining time that we have. But I'll tell them all to you up front. The three ingredients are these. The three ingredients are humility, harmony and hunger. Humility, harmony and hunger. The three ingredients for them to restart their Lord's Supper together on a God-glorifying footing. Uh, So by humility, let's start with that. By humility then, Paul firstly shows them that if they just stop for a second and put themselves before the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, on the night of his last supper, the first of the Lord's suppers, then it blows arrogance out of the water. They've got to start with that humility. So he's saying, sit for a moment before the Lord, won't you? That's where he takes them. Whose body and blood were broken, were shed for you. Verse 23, let's read that together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. That's impressive, isn't it? Make sure you turn me up, Warren. I love hearing the rain, but I don't want it to be the loudest thing in the room. Uh, Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, do you see how it's kind of the bookends of the meal? After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That last verse, that last little clause, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'd always taken it. Maybe out of context, actually, more as a promise, primarily as a promise. Um, Look what you have to look forward to. Um, Look what's coming. It's not long now. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, the kind of prayer of John at the end of Revelation. But in this passage, and for the church in Corinth, do you think it's perhaps a threat kind of a thing? Or maybe not a a warning, a wake-up call, perhaps, do you think? Is that what Paul's doing there? In other words, he's saying, while you fuss about where you're seated or whether you're seated or um, while you make a parade of yourself, oh, so important, Corinthians, look at me. I'm one of the people in the dining room and I get to have the full meal. Um, You are one meal closer to the return 
of him whose body and blood was spilled for you. Are you sure that you want to eat and drink like that among the company of his people? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what I mean? I don't know. Is there something of that in there, I wonder? And folks, if there are any among us this morning, maybe we wouldn't quite carry ourselves in the way that the Corinthians do, but if there are any among us this morning who have kind of made it our goal in church life, might not put it so brazenly, but made it our goal in church life to work our way in, to get to the top, to where we deserve to be. You know, if that's the sense of arrival in our lives that we crave, if church is the sphere that we long for that kind of recognition, oh, we don't get it at work and we don't really get it in the family, but at church, there I can be recognised for who I am. There I can be elevated. I think Paul's words here are so helpful, aren't they? He's saying, look, please, won't you eyeball our Lord on the night that he was betrayed? Because we are here. I am here and you are here. The only reason we are a church at all comes back to this. I'm a sinner for whom Christ's body was broken. I'm a sinner for whom Christ's blood was shed. He did it for me in the unbreakable covenant faithfulness of our God. Um, Equally, I suppose, if you're someone who feels that you are being squeezed out of church one way or another, pushed out of church, you feel like you're on your way out and you really don't want to be, there's no room for me here, I'm not valued here anymore, perhaps I used to be, but then I think there's great restorative power in these words, restoring power in these words, isn't there? This is my body, which is for you, do you see? For, who, for whenever, verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Humility before our Lord. Humility. Secondly, harmony. So going back to the body and blood of the Lord, reimagining ourselves, putting ourselves back in that upper room with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, uh, going back to the body and blood of the Lord, um, vertically, it, 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 it brings me to a place of humility. It reconnects me with Jesus in that way. Um, but also, it does this second thing that's not just about me and Jesus, it's about how we see one another horizontally. Uh, the body of believers all around us. The Lord's Supper calls them, yes, firstly, to humility, but secondly, to harmony with one another. I think there's an important play on words in these verses. Verse 27, let's read from there. Therefore, whoever eats, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let me just give away the punchline. I think that last little reference, without recognising the body of the Lord, I think it's a a recognising the church around you. It's that common metaphor of the, the body. Now, you've got to remember, in their case, what was it, verse 27, what was the unworthy manner? in which they were um, eating and drinking and conducting the Lord's Supper, it's that they were grievously shaming 
and perhaps even malnourishing their fellow believers. That was in their setting, that was the unworthy manner. If you keep doing that, it is an insult, it is an affront to the very sacrifice of Christ. You're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So examine yourself, won't you? There's humility, which will then lead you to, here's the word play, recognise the body of the Lord around you. Verse 29. Now, why do I think that particular bit is a play on words there? Um, it's, it's a couple of things. Firstly, that phrase, the body of the Lord, it's the only place actually in this whole paragraph where you get the body without a mention of the blood. Did you notice that? Everything else is eat and drink, eat and drink, body and blood. But there it's singled out. Recognise the body of the Lord. Um, and secondly, body is such a big metaphor for Paul of the church. We're going to come to that in future weeks, so I won't rabbit on about it now. Uh, now, why does that matter? Harmony. That's why. So uh, have a listen to this. From, this is from Roy Champer and, and Brian Rosner, whose words I particularly appreciate in 1 Corinthians. So they say, look, to examine yourself means to examine one's compliance with the covenant as reflected in their way of relating to other members of the community and to discern the body of Christ or recognise the body of Christ must include recognising that those other members of the community represent Christ himself. It's the body of the Lord, do you see? Those other members of the community represent Christ himself since they have also been united with him and must be treated as people for whom Christ chose to give up his life and to shed his blood. Is that what I see when I look around church? Men and women, boys and girls, for whom Christ chose to give up his body and to shed his blood. Christ shed his blood and gave up his life for you. So what, I'm going to cling to my spot at the head table at the Lord's Supper there in Corinth? Your life and your plight mean so little to me that I'm going to gorge myself knowing full well that it means you're going to go hungry. You're going to miss your one meal of the day. You've been slogging it away at work. Lucky me, I don't even have to. I'm one of the rich elite. Do you see how the Lord's Supper drives harmony amongst the people of God when we see one another in light of the Lord's Supper? Um, as a, a, a bit of an aside, I've got two little asides here. Um, in this, de- in this um, denomination, in our um, practice as a church uh, at session meetings. So session is the collection of the, the elders, sometimes the deacons um, and the minister. But So the, the minister and the elders. And there's this one little tradition that we have in our denomination um, that we do every single session meeting. And uh, some of you who've been on session over the years, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called mutual censure. Do you know what that is? Weird phrase, isn't it? Mutual censure. And may I say, I'm really glad that we've got that little tradition in our church life. Mutual censure is the agenda item on our session meeting, it's there every single time, where the chairman of session looks every one of us in the eye and asks this, asks, brother, is there anything between you and your fellow believers, your brothers around this table that would prevent you from sharing the Lord's Supper with them when we next do as a church. 
looks us in the eye. Anything that disturbs the peace among you, anything that would rob you of the harmony that we are to have in the Lord. I think it's a good practice for our elders to continue in, and and me as well, for our, our session to continue in. But think about it. How about yourself? The next time we come to do the Lord's Supper, it's the first Sunday of every month, you know when it's going to be. It's a question worth asking yourself. Is there bitterness between me and someone else in this building at the moment? Is there something that robs us of the peace that we should enjoy in the Lord together. When you see them across the room as you're coming through the doors, do you decide, I think I'll sit on the other side just for this week? As a very brief aside, uh, may I say, if we've rightly understood these verses um, so far, uh, they're about humility before the Lord in view of the Lord's Supper. They're about a humility before one another that drives harmony amongst the people of God, very brief aside, uh, then I can't particularly see a strong argument from these verses for preventing children coming to the Lord's table and sharing the Lord's Supper. Now, that's the current practice in our denomination, but the reason I mention it is because it's under review at the moment by a, a committee in our denomination, and these verses here are absolutely part of that discussion. But it seems to me, in these verses at least, an age-appropriate, age-appropriate humility and harmony amongst even the young in our congregations, well, that's what these verses are calling for and that's what we should be looking for. Uh, Anyway, let me leave that at that. You can take that up with me another time if you'd like. So, nevertheless, humility and harmony, indispensable ingredients for a true celebration of the Lord's Supper. And thirdly, you need to give me some poetic licence with this one, third ingredient, critical ingredient is hunger. Hunger. Um, But the appetite that you need, the hunger that you need as you come to the Lord's Supper isn't a bodily appetite for dinner, verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, verse 22. Or verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, verse 34. Oh, but you do need a hunger. You do need an appetite. You need a hunger for the fatherly discipline that will lead you back to the Lord. I think that's what this passage is saying. Now, what do you think is going on here? I think these are some of the strangest verses in our passage today, but I think the main theme uh, is is, um, what I've just described, a hunger for the discipline of the Lord to lead you back to him. Verse 29, let's read, where Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. He means died. But if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment. When we're judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you, when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions. Do you have an appetite? I think this is the upshot here. Do you have an appetite? You know, regardless of how the details here work out, an appetite for interpreting. 
being open to interpret hardship in our church community as discipline of our spiritual family, our spiritual family from a loving Heavenly Father. I think these words are helpful. Let me read them to you. In much of the Western world today, the idea that God would judge His people in the way Paul suggests here, you know, weak and sick and falling asleep, that idea is completely foreign. And people may be tempted to think that Paul's language reflects an antiquated and unenlightened view of God. Such an attitude reflects the extent to which the modern world has lost the biblical understanding of God's transcendence and fearsome holiness. Then they give an example which I think is helpful. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis emphasised the idea that Aslan was not a tame lion, but in, in much of evangelical culture at the beginning of the 21st century, the Christian God is a tame God in whose presence people feel free to enter in a trifling or frivolous manner, Paul would have us know that the way we behave in worship and the way we treat other members of God's holy people are not to be taken lightly, but require the most serious circumspection. I think it's helpful for us to remember, isn't it? There is a serious side to the Lord's Supper. There is a serious side to our gathering together each Sunday. But folks, without taking anything away from that, I wonder, you know, you look at this weak and sick and falling asleep, I wonder if the explanation behind these verses isn't actually just the really obvious one. The poorest, the most hungry, those with the least, and indeed those who are working the hardest, you know, don't you, Corinthians, that there are malnourished people in their church. And this was their one meal for today and you just ate it. You ate it before they even arrived. When people don't have enough to eat, they get sick. When people don't have enough to eat and they get sick, and eventually some of them die, their blood is on your hands, oh rich. You can try and squirm your way out of it. When you are not there for them because they are beneath you, they're from a lower social class, so their nourishment doesn't particularly matter to you. When they die, the the, the ones that you feel so much more important than, so much more impressive than, their blood is on your hands, O rich, well-nourished Corinthians. And get this, it is the judgment of God on you, O church in Corinth, that they are weak, that they are sick, that they have fallen asleep and now must wait until the return of the Lord Jesus in glory and for the wedding banquet of the Lamb for their next meal. Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. So has the Lord's Supper, does the Lord's Supper drive you every time to consider not only the body and blood of the Lord Jesus given for you personally, you and Jesus' humility. Does the Lord's Supper drive you every time to see afresh your fellow believers as brothers and sisters valued and dearly loved in the Lord, people for whom Christ chose to give of himself 
to have his blood spilled for them? Does the Lord's Supper drive you once again with a hunger here and now to be ready for his return on whatever day um, that comes? I'd like to finish with um, a little story from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher from the 1800s, and then we'll just go straight to prayer. Spurgeon says, you have an enemy, you have an enemy who all his life long has been your enemy. His father was your enemy and he is your enemy too. There is never a day passes but you try to win his friendship, but he spits upon your kindness and curses your name. He harms your friends and there is not a stone he leaves unturned to do you damage. As you're going home today, you see a house on fire. The flames are raging and the smoke is ascending up in one black column to heaven. Crowds gather in the street and you're told there is a man in the upper bedroom who must be burnt to death. No one can save him. You say, why, that is my enemy's house. And you see him at the window. It is your own enemy. The very man is about to be burned. Full of loving kindness, you say, I will save that man if I can. He sees you approach the house. He puts his head out the window and curses you. An everlasting blast upon you, he says. I'd rather perish than that you should save me. Do you imagine yourself then dashing through the smoke and climbing the blazing staircase to save him? And can you conceive... Can you conceive that when you get near him, he struggles with you and tries to roll you into the flames? Can you conceive your love, your love to be so potent that you can perish in the flames rather than leave him to be burned? And Spurgeon says, you say, you say, I couldn't do it. It's beyond flesh and blood to do it. But Jesus did it. We hated him, we despised him, and when he came to save us, we rejected him. When his Holy Spirit comes into our hearts to strive with us, we resist him, but he will save us. No, he himself braved the fire that he might snatch us as brands from eternal burning. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, what was beyond flesh and blood, what was well and truly beyond us, Christ has done in flesh and blood for us. Father, each time we share the Lord's Supper as a congregation, each time we remember that broken body, that broken bread, that shed blood, that poured out cup, each time, Father, we share the Lord's Supper, indeed each time we gather on Sunday, each time we see one another through the week, each time we call one another to mind in the privacy of our own heads, may we reenact the Lord's Supper in this much. May Christ's flesh and blood cause us to see ourselves as in before you forever and unchangeably and may Christ's flesh and blood cause us to see one another as in, in before you, equally 
forever and unchangeably. Lord, may the details of our church life, therefore, you know, the the wording of our emails, the tone of our conversation, the, the openness or otherwise of our homes, in the details of church life, may we reflect the glory of our God and pursue the good of one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.